0: Y'all turn with me to Second Samuel. We're going to be covering several chapters of Second Samuel today. Don't worry, that, that doesn't mean we're going to take longer than usual. At least I don't plan to. Um, but we're, we're continuing to look in the life of King David, and we finally get to the part where things start to turn good for David. In fact, everything we're going to talk about today that happens to David in this story is good, and yet that may be a bad thing. Sometimes getting what you've always wanted can be the worst possible thing that can happen to you. From a spiritual standpoint, from a standpoint of the part of you that lasts forever, getting what your body desires, what your, what your heart wants, what your mind longs for can be the worst possible thing for you. And so, as we look at David's life, you're going to see that. Now, we see this in various ways in, in life today. I, I, don't, I know this isn't a real-life example, but my favorite movies of all time are the Indiana Jones movies. He's my favorite character. Uh, most of you who care about that kind of thing have seen those movies. Uh, they stopped being made 30 years ago, so you've had plenty of time. I mean, the ones that count. They should have stopped with the first three and then left it. But um, one of the things I was thinking about as I was preparing for this message is, Every one of those movies, in every one of those movies, I don't think I'm spoiling anything, in every one of those movies, a character ends up getting exactly what they were seeking, and it destroys them. You think about that. And that's true in real life, too. I remember when I was right around 30 years old, uh, so near the beginning of my preaching career, you might say, I had lunch with a man, a a pastor who was in his mid-60s, so he was near the end of his preaching career. And he said, he shared his story with me. He said, When I was your age, I was the hot young preacher boy. Every conference wanted me to come speak, every church wanted me to do a revival. The seminary wanted me to come and and teach on campus a couple of classes every semester. And he said, I didn't turn down a single invitation. I was so excited to be wanted. This is exactly the life I hoped for for myself. And and on top of that, there was always some bigger, more prestigious church that wanted me to leave my current church and move on up the ladder. He said, it was so exciting for me. But he said, all that success... All those offers, all that adulation kept me from being home because I was always teaching. I was always preaching. I was always speaking somewhere. He so said, now I, I have an adult son who lives in California, thousands of miles away from me. We rarely have any contact. He struggles with addiction. There's absolutely nothing I can do for him. He said, when I think about the success that I had when I was your age, it all, it all tastes like ashes in my mouth. Getting exactly what he wanted was the worst thing for him. You think about the people we call celebrities today. Think about a young man or young woman growing up and saying to themselves, I want to be the one everyone knows. I want to be on the covers of magazines. I want my name in lights. I want TV shows about me and and people to send me fan mail. That's my dream. And then they get there and they achieve it. Let me ask you something. Do those people seem happy to you? They seem like the most unhappy people on earth when you look at their lives, when you look at what they go through. Getting exactly what you want can be the worst possible thing for you. Let's bring it down to normal people. Look at our society today. By any measure you can name, we have it better than any group of people that has ever existed on the face of the earth. You realize that many of us own houses where the garages are bigger than the homes our grandparents lived in. And that's no lie. We have so much stuff. One of the biggest industries in America today is self-storage. You want to make money? Go put up a self-storage facility. Because we have so much stuff, we have to pay other people to store our stuff for us. In fact, I heard somewhere, I I wish I could find the statistic again, that if you took all the self-storage facilities in America and and we lost our homes, there would be enough room in those self-storage facilities for every American to live comfortably. There's enough space. That's how much stuff we have. We live in a time when, unlike the days of our grandparents, parents, and great-grandparents, we don't have to go to war unless we choose to. We're an all-volunteer military, and so there's nobody in our country that is forced to serve their country. In fact, we've been engaged in a war now for close to 20 years, and very few of us have had to sacrifice anything. That's very different from previous generations. We have things that make life so convenient. We have air conditioning. We have smartphones. We have entertainment wall to wall. From the moment we wake up until the the moment we close our eyes at night, you would think that we'd be a whole lot happier than our grandparents' generation. But are we? I don't think so. When you look at the the rates of suicide, it's going up. Rates of depression, anxiety, alcohol, drug addiction, loneliness, by any possible measure, we're less happy with all our prosperity. Sometimes getting what you've always wanted can be the worst thing for your soul. Now, you've heard sermons on overcoming suffering and trials. You've heard plenty of them. Have you ever heard one about overcoming prosperity? Well, you're about to. Because I say to you that getting what you want can be harder on your soul than having things taken away. And that's not to say that we shouldn't ask God to bless us or we shouldn't be thankful for our blessings. We should. If they were bad things, he wouldn't give them to us. But we have to guard our souls in times like this. And we're going to look at David, as I said, he's about to get everything he's always wanted and more, more than he ever dreamed. In fact, 2 Samuel starts with David hearing the news of the battle of Mount Gilboa on which King Saul and his sons were killed. And While this is a national tragedy for Israel, for David it meant that his time of trial was over. The man who hunted him and hated him was now dead and so he was free. For the first time in his life, he didn't have to look over his shoulder. He didn't have to hide. He was free. Not only that, he was now free to fulfill his destiny as Israel's next king. And in fact, Judah, his own tribe, crowned him king of Israel. Now, there was another faction that, that supported Saul's remaining son, Ishbosheth. And so there was a civil war between those two forces. But David's force was stronger, and they won very quickly, very easily. And David became king of all of Israel. And in the midst of that, the first thing he decided to do, by the way, in the midst of all of that, I I want to show you chapter 4, verse 4. There's this little detail in the midst of all this turmoil in Israel and David becoming king that if you read it for yourself, as you did recently in our Bible reading, you might think, well, why did they throw that in there? What difference does that make? And here it is, chapter 4, verse 4. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So keep that name in, your, in the back of your mind, that story in the back of your mind. We're going to come back to that. So David is now king. Remember, he started as a shepherd boy, forgotten, the runt of the litter, then he became briefly a hero and then a fugitive for many, many years, over a decade Probably now he's king. And one of the first things he does as king of a united nation of Israel is he attacks Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the big city in the heart of Israel, and yet for all those years, right there in the middle of the promised land, the Israelites have not conquered Jerusalem. The Jebusites still hold it. So David says, this should not be. This must be our property. God told us it would be. And so he attacks. The Jebusites figure, well, they're going to fall before us just like all the other Israelite armies, but they don't. David conquers Jerusalem and makes it His capital. And immediately, one of the first things he does entrenched there in Jerusalem is he brings in the Ark of the Covenant, speaking of Indiana Jones. So remember, the Ark of the Covenant was the big gold box that Aaron built to hold the Ten Commandments and hold other important relics of Israelite worship. And the the Jews believed this was where the presence of God dwelt inside that ark or on top of that ark. And so, whenever they would come before the Lord, they'd really come before that ark. Now, for years, it's been sitting in the, in the home of a farmer on the, in the outskirts of Israel. And so, David brings it into Jerusalem because he wants God to be in the heart of their country. And it's such a joyous occasion. This is what the Bible says in chapter 6, verse 14. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Now, we are Baptists, (laughs) and so dancing doesn't really sound like part of our worship. Many of us are white Baptists, so we're really not used to dancing as part of worship, and and yet this was customary in in Jewish worship, And, and, and we have a hard time picturing it. Now, I've I've read the work of archaeologists who studied this stuff. And so they've, they've been able to basically re, uh, redo or, or show us what these dance moves look like. And so I'm going to demonstrate for you, right? No, no not really. Um, I, I can't even. But, but, you know, as nervous as I just made you, okay? Think about the people of Israel looking down and seeing their king. And the Scriptures tell us that some, including one of David's wives, looked down and said, you're a fool. Look at you. You're, you're, you're shedding your dignity. You should be regal. You should be above us. You're down there with the servant girls dancing around. And he said, well, I don't care. I'm rejoicing in my God. I will be even more undignified than this. And that's the kind of heart that he had. So David, once the ark is in Jerusalem, he says, I want to build a house for God. Here I am living in a palace for the first time in my life. I have a roof over my head. I've always been a shepherd boy or a fugitive. Now I've got a roof, but the ark of God is still in the same old ratty tent that it's been in since the time of Moses. I want to build a house for my God. And Nathan the prophet says, that sounds like a good idea to me. But then he goes home and God speaks to him. And and so Nathan comes back and says to David, King, God loves your heart, but you're not to build a house for him. That's your son's job. He will build the house. You're a man of blood. He'll be a man of peace. You're a man of conquest. He'll be a man of empire and and building. But I want to make you a promise. And I want to read you this passage from chapter 7, verse 8. Through 16. This is a long passage, but theologically speaking, this is the most important passage in the whole David story. Listen to what God says to David. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. What he means by that is not a physical structure. He means a dynasty. The house of David will be an ongoing dynasty. By the way, in the ancient world, From the poorest to the richest, the most important thing was, am I building something that's going to last? Even if you were a poor man or woman of the land, what you wanted was to know, my children will inherit this little piece of property, and they'll have something to provide for themselves. That's the way the ancient world thought. I will have children. I will be able to see my children's children and know they're taken care of. So what God is saying to David and what he's about to say is an incredibly precious promise. This is greater than any any wealth that God could have bestowed on David is to say, you are building something that will last. He says again, the Lord will make for you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Now, in addition to all of this, David continues to be unbeatable on the battlefield as he goes forth and leads Israel's army. The the army of Israel used to be the whipping boy of the Middle East. And now they're everybody's greatest fear. Now they can't be defeated. In fact, chapter 8, verse 14 says this, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. So again, think about David. Goes from an ignored, forgotten, run-of-the-litter-shepherd boy, briefly a hero, and then a fugitive, public enemy number one, hunted for his life. And now, he's a hero of the nation. He's the king everyone adores. Everything he touches turns to gold. He's blessed with riches and glory and adoration and honor and the favor of God. And history shows that when you get everything you've always wanted, it can be the worst possible thing for you. And yet, through the first part of David's reign, through the first several decades, through the first several years at least, he continually makes the right choice. He does not let prosperity defeat him. How does he do it? What makes the difference? What's the difference between David and my friend, the former pastor? What's the difference between David and our generation? I'll tell you. It's not that David is perfect. He's far from perfect. He has the same sin nature you and I do. Next week we're going to start seeing the flaws of David manifest themselves and over the next two weeks we're going to see the impact they had on his life and on the nation. But What made the difference in David's life, what made him a man after God's own heart is this one thing. He never got over the gospel. How did David avoid the curse of prosperity? He never got over the gospel. Now, you may be saying to me, Jeff, gospel's a New Testament term. That hadn't even been invented yet when David's alive. That's a thousand years in the future, and yet the gospel's still the gospel before it's called that. Gospel just means good news. What do I mean when I say David never got over the gospel? Look at Psalm 16, 2. It's on the screen behind you. I said to the Lord, You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. This is the king of the nation. says to his people in print, for all generations to read, sure, I'm the king. Sure, I win every battle. Sure, I live in a palace. Sure, I've got the favor of God. But apart from him, apart from his mercy, I've got nothing. Anything good that I have, he gave it to me. Anything bad that I have, I brought it upon myself. He never got over the good news. See, what happens, what tends to happen to people and why prosperity is so damaging is we get to the point where we get what we want and we start to think, I've earned this. This is mine by right. And we cling to it like a dog with a juicy bone. And it poisons our souls. And that thing that used to be a longed-for dream or a treat you get once in a while, now it becomes something you think you're entitled to. You don't enjoy it. You don't appreciate it like you once did. In fact, you want more. That never happened to David because he always knew, I don't deserve any of this. See, when I, when I say he, he never got over the gospel, I mean he was profoundly aware of his constant need for God's grace. He knew, number one, I am a sinner. No different than I was when I was a shepherd boy or a fugitive. I'm still the same old sinful David. And yet, my God is still the same God and His mercy is still just as great. And He's still capable of forgiving me and redeeming me and restoring me and using me no matter what I've done. He was profoundly aware of His need of God's grace. He never got over the gospel. Now, you might say, okay, does that mean that if I know I'm a sinner and I know that God is gracious and He's going to forgive me, I can do whatever I want? That's the loophole people try to find in the gospel but that's not the way it works. Anybody who's tasted grace, really tasted grace, knows that's not the way it works. That's the way it may look from the outside. But anyone who experiences the gospel, who lives the gospel, who tastes grace, you know that once grace gets in you, once the gospel gets in you, it gets all over you. It's sort of like a toddler and food. You know, if you've got a two or three-year-old and they're eating something, and you come up to them after they've eaten, you don't have to ask, hey, what did you have for supper? Because it's all over them, right? It's obvious. I remember when my kids were little, Will, you always knew what he had been eating because he had some of it here. I'm sorry, here on the side of his face and on his forearm because whenever he would eat, he'd go just like that. My daughter was even worse because whatever she, whenever she was done eating, she'd come up to me And I'd usually with my back turned, and she'd grab my pants and just rub her mouth right back and forth. (laughs) So she not only got it all over her, she got it on other people. Isn't that a great image of what it means to live the gospel out? Once the gospel gets in you, it gets all over you. You're changed. You're a different person. Doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means you're different. You don't stay the same. You don't have the same values. You don't have the same frustration, and it bubbles up over the top of you and gets on others around you, and that's where Mephibosheth comes in. Chapter 9, verse 1, and David said, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? So, So here's David. He's free from persecution. He's now king of the nation. He has united all the forces of his nation so there's no other contenders for the throne. He's living in a palace. He's already figured out his son's going to build the temple for the Lord. He's got the favor of God. He's defeated all of his enemies. Everything has gone his way. He's got nothing more to do except govern the nation day by day. And his first thought is, isn't there somebody in Saul's family I can help out? Now, you and I may think, well, that's a really gracious thing, and especially because, you know, Jonathan was his, his uh, closest friend ever. I mean, this makes sense. And yet, if you put yourself back in those times, this was a terrible decision from a political standpoint. If you were David's political advisor, and he's sitting on the throne, and you're discussing the orders of the day, and, and okay, here's what the Jerusalem stock market's doing, and here's how, you know, here's how this is going, and... And David says, you know, here's something I want to do. I want to try to show some kindness to one of the surviving members of the house of Saul. You would have said, my Lord, that's a terrible idea. You don't do that. I mean, everybody knows that when a new family takes the throne, a dynasty ends and a new one begins, the first thing you do is you kill everybody in the old king's family. I mean, even if it's a little baby, you kill it because you don't want that baby to grow up and then some loyalists to that family come along and say, aha, here is King so-and-so. He's the rightful heir instead of this usurper. You don't want any of that. Besides, even if you're merciful, if David shows mercy to a member of Saul's family, mercy to the ancient world was a sign of weakness. David's enemies would have seen that and said, Aha, David lacks the will to rule. And so we can challenge him. The one thing you can't afford if you're a king is to be weak. And yet David knows this is the right thing to do. By the way, this is about as political a thing as I'm about to say, that I'll ever say. But wouldn't you love to have political leaders who did what was right instead of what helped them get elected? That's what David does here. He does what's right. Not what his base is telling him to do. Not what what looks good on social media. Not what looks good uh, to the voters, so to speak. David does what's right. And the one surviving member of Saul's family, is old Mephibosheth. Remember him? So, verse 6 of that same chapter. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. Now, picture Mephibosheth. He's crippled in both feet. Remember, he was dropped as a five-year-old. His legs were injured in those times of, of very primitive medical care. He wasn't cared for correctly, and so he becomes crippled in that society. I mean, these days, Thank God, people of all kinds of infirmities can live very full lives, can contribute to society because there's other things other than our physical abilities, but in those days, if you were crippled, you were seen as worthless. You were seen as worse than worthless because not only could you not work with your arms and legs, you could not earn a living for yourself, but people looked at you and said, wow, God must really hate you to have done this to you. What did you do to make God curse you this way? So Mephibosheth is seen as cursed by God. He's a member of a family that he knows David should hate, has every right to put to death. He's been living off the charity of someone else, living in hiding, probably just eating what little it took to survive. And Now he's summoned into the court of the king, and I'm sure he's thinking, okay, it's judgment day. Now's my time. He's going to take my head to show the world how strong he is. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, do not fear, for I will show kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, what is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat, but Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. So you're going to work for him, you're going to bring in wealth, but he'll never have to tap into that because I'll provide for him myself. He'll be building it up for his sons and his grandsons. Then Ziba said to the king, Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. So here's a man who is cursed, who has lost everything, who is seen by the world around him as getting what he deserves. He's summoned before the king who has every right, who has every reason to put him to death. And instead, the king makes him like one of his own sons. This is a man who has nothing to offer David at all. Nothing. He can't fight in the army. He can't contribute financially. And in fact, just keeping him alive makes David look weaker. And yet, David makes him like one of his sons. Is that not the perfect picture of our story? Because you think about it. God made that promise to David someday you're going to have a son who's going to reign forever. We know, because we read the rest of the Bible, that that wasn't referring strictly to the physical descendants of David in the next couple of generations. because as you read the stories in first and Second Kings, first and Second Chronicles, you see, sometimes they were faithful, sometimes they were faithless, sometimes they did well, sometimes they didn't, And eventually, the nation of Judah itself ceased to exist. And there's never been, since that day. Uh, 2,500 years ago, there's never been another son of David sit a physical throne in Jerusalem. So what was God talking about when he made that promise to David? He was talking about the once and future king of Israel. He's talking about the ultimate son of David, descended from David's line through both his mother and his father, Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem like David who sits in eternal throne, who rules this world and will rule this world forever. Jesus, whose reign will never end. He comes into the world, the once and future king, the the one promised, and he looks at us, and what can we contribute to him? Not one thing. All our righteous acts are like filthy rags in his sight. We have nothing to add to him, nothing to contribute, nothing in us that he needs us. In fact, if just things were just, he'd just put us all to death. But instead, he makes us sons and daughters. Sons and daughters forever. So that, so that his Holy Spirit is working to enrich us every day and make us more and more like him. And at the same time, we're eating and feasting at his table. And unlike David, who just had to say a word in Mephibosheth with his son, no, Jesus had to die to make it possible. Jesus had to lay down his life for us on the cross to bring us into his family. We're Mephibosheth in this story. That's the gospel. That's who we are. So how do we avoid the curse of prosperity? Just like David, never get over the gospel. See, the fact is, there was a time when you were so excited to hear that story. When it changed your life, maybe you were a little kid, eight or nine years old like I was. Maybe you were an adult and you'd lived a long time doing things your way and had seen over and over again that it just didn't work. And finally, you heard good news that, no, God's not against me. He's on my side. Look what he's done for me. Either way, you heard it and you rejoiced. But what happened? What happens to all of us? We get everything we want and we start to say, yeah. I deserve this. Yeah, I'm blessed, but why not? I'm a good person. Look at me. Look at at all the sins that I've overcome by my own strength and power. What's the matter with you out there, sinner? How come you can't do what I did? We forget. We forget the gospel. We forget the gospel is our story, and it's something we need every day. So how do you never get over that? How do you not fall victim to that That curse of prosperity that makes you into a Pharisee. Well, there's a reason why every time I get up to preach, I always tie the scripture we're talking about to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's the story of the Bible and it reminds us. But that's not enough. That's why every Sunday, Robert and Nathan, when they plan worship, their focus is one thing and one thing only. They want to put Jesus at the forefront of everything that we do here. But that's not enough. It's a weekly reminder, but it's not enough. Hope you're in the Bible daily. You're reading the gospel daily. Great, but it takes more than that. It takes what David did. It takes looking around at the Mephibosheths around you and saying to them, listen, what God did for me, I want to do for you. He saw me when I was nothing, and he made me into a son or daughter. He wants to do that same thing for you. Find those Mephiboshes around you. I'm talking about all the people, all the opportunities that are around you every day, every day, to show love to someone who has nothing to pay you back with. You know, we're, next, this week, we're starting public schools begin their school year. And, and this is a different kind of school year for us at, at First Baptist because we're adopting a school two blocks from us, Sam Houston Elementary. And this week we took thirty-seven boxes, I think, of school supplies. That's fantastic. But what we need is people on that campus from this church who go and, and sit maybe just for a lunch once a week with a child. So that child grows up knowing there's an adult that doesn't have it's not paid to be with me, isn't part of my family that cares about me. That can make all the difference. Or maybe, maybe you work during the day and that's not an option. Or maybe you just don't like little kids. If that's the case, hey, know your limits. We don't want you on that campus, all right? <laughs> but you've got chefs around you, all around you. I'm talking about the elderly person nearby, and you know their kids live across the country and ne- never come see them. You can go and visit them weekly. Just drop in. And yeah, I know she tells you the same story every time you go but you don't know how much it means that you're there. I'm talking about the the single mom that you know about in your workplace or maybe one of your son or daughter's friends, and they've just been through divorce, and you can show up and just say, hey, can I keep your kids for you? Once a week, just bring them over to the house so you can just have a break, get some things done, or take a nap for that matter. I'm talking about the person who you work with that nobody's friends with, and chances are there's a reason for that, but you can be the friend. I'm talking about the person who's been rejected, the person who's ignored, the person who's forgotten. The world has told these people they have nothing to contribute, and we can show them there's a God who loves them just as they are. We can show them just through simple action. The God of grace who changed my life wants to do the same for you. So will you do a very brave thing? Will you say to God, will you give God the blank check of saying, Lord, show me someone in my life this week who needs in a practical way your love that I can show them. Show me some Mephibosheth in my life. If you can't pronounce Mephibosheth, that's okay. Lord, show me someone who needs your love. It's in your bulletin. Take it home. It'll remind you every day to pray that prayer. And God will be faithful because they're all around us. There's still lots of room, plenty of room at the table of our King.